on gold, gold in that dumpster. I mean, I used to find full sandwiches. I used to find burgers. I used to find burritos. And so for like a good four days, and I would eat it and I would be so grateful and I'd wake up and I'd do it all over again. Hey friends, Bedros Koulian here. Welcome to another episode of the Empire Podcast. And as you can see, that is not Craig, which means we are doing another inside look. And today I've got a very special guest, a dear friend of mine, and one of the most high-performance entrepreneurs that I could think of, Sharon Srivatsa. Sharon, how are you, buddy? Bedros, thank you for... Thanks yeah, for yeah, coming yeah. out here. And um, for those who don't know, you got on board with a company called Telus Properties. Yep. What did Telus Properties do? Why don't you give us a little backstory? Yeah, so um, my, my partners and I invested in, we have a, a, a fund that invests in technology companies, real estate companies, et cetera. So we had invested in this company called Telus Properties. They were selling high-end real estate across the California coast. And in the early stages, for some reason, it was going in the wrong direction. Yeah. So they brought us in just for an outside look, and that was about six and a half, seven years ago. And that's when we kind of, me and my partner took over to turn the company around and grow it. Okay, so about six and a half, seven years ago, you take over, you become president. Right. At that point, if you don't mind me sharing some numbers, the company's doing over 300 million a year. Right, so they're doing about 300 million a year, one, one and a half offices, about 45 agents overall. So, you know, people watching and listening to this are going, wow, the company's doing 300 million a year. Obviously, it's massively profitable, was it? It was, it, it could have done a lot better. Right. Yeah, it could So in the beginning stages, even though it was doing $300 million a year, it was not that profitable. And what you were able to do in a short period of time, in fact, in five years, is to 10x the top line on that, didn't you? Yeah, so we took the company from about $300 million a year last, towards the end of last year. We finished the year at $3.4 billion. So we did a 10x in a five-year period. We were on the Inc. 500 four consecutive years growing 10x in five years, which is a big kind of win Huge, for both of us. Huge, right. And uh, the interesting part was we set out with that goal. Like we, when we took over, when I took over, I was like, we need to do 10x for many reasons because otherwise the economics just didn't get exciting enough. It didn't, it was not exciting enough to leave everything that I was doing on Wall Street to come and do this. Sure. But I said, well, if we can do a 10x in five years, this gets very exciting because it gives us options. Because all these entrepreneurs think about how do I get the exit? The exit is not the answer. Right. The options are the answer. The options. Yeah. And you want to give yourself the options to exit or to stay and enjoy right. and scale. Right. Exactly right. And gotcha. so to finish up the story, la at the end of last year, a publicly traded company out of New York bought us, which was probably one of the largest transactions in two independent companies buying each other's history. And I just served my term in the integration and uh, delivered a great company to Good a public company. Yeah. What a great story. And so, of course, everyone watching and listening to the Empire Podcast Show, our audience is typically folks who want to start their own business and don't just want to be solopreneurs, but want to become an entrepreneur at a level where they're making a massive impact. They're making a lot of money. They understand money as a vehicle to change and impact and freedom. You've had that, but you weren't born from money, were you? Uh, no, we. Uh, I was born. I was born in India to very humble parents and with very humble roots. I think my. I remember my mom telling me, we only had one child because we couldn't afford another, and that 
That's a lot of pressure on that you, stays, isn't it? That still stayed with me. I don't think she would ever say that again. Mm. I, she probably forgot she already told me that, and I remembered that. But I took that as a gift. I took that as an opportunity. I took that as more a responsibility because they had, apart from birthing a child, they almost had invested in me, right? They said, hey, they had singularity of focus on investment. They said, this is our son. We're not going to dilute this pot. We're going to give him everything we got. And there's an immense sense of gratitude that comes with that. Early on, it was like, it was lonely growing up, right? I got, I got comfortable living alone sure. and, and not having siblings, but there was a deep sense of responsibility when my parents shared that uh, at the time in the lives that they had, at that point, they could have only done well for once, one child. And I'm, I'm super grateful for that. Yeah. And so the fact that you're a, an only child and your parents have gone all in on you, did that put any kind of pressure on you as you were growing up through elementary school, junior high, high school, and on? I don't think it did per se, but I think the hard part was, I think it did for them. I think what they got out of it was, hey, we made this, we've had one child, we want to give him everything possible. Sure. And they recognized that uh, me being born in that infrastructure and that system, which is India, was not conducive to who I was. And it was amazing. My parent, my, my dad, I remember, he was sitting on a park bench. And he told me, it's probably, I was probably in eighth or ninth grade, eighth grade maybe. And he said to me, it's a tough conversation to have with an, eight, with an eighth grader. He said, this may not be the right country for you. And we need to pick one thing that is your passport to leaving here. And I was like, what, 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 does, that, what does that mean? And, and eighth grade, so that's what, 13 years old? 13, 14, 14 13 right? years old. And I said, and he said, it can't be a team sport. You're tone deaf, you can't sing. Academically, you're like a B plus, A minus student, and there's way too many people, much smarter scholastically. And so you, you gotta pick an individual sport. And I said, okay, so I kid you not, the only, right in front of us, outside this park bench, was a set of tennis courts. And he's like, can you cut it? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And so- and, That's a lot of pressure, yeah, right, in that and, moment. And, and so he said, we don't need you to go pro. We don't need you to win trophies. We don't need you to make money. This is a way for you to get out of the country. And we will do whatever it takes for you to get using this to get out of the country. Holy smoke. So, I mean, here you are. Again, it's, it's very rare that I get to interview someone who's an immigrant like I am and became an entrepreneur. And I moved to the United States when I was six years old. I didn't have a culture and friends that I had already gone to school with and then had to leave them. So. Now you're in India, you're going to school there, you have friends, you've adopted to the culture, and you're 13, 14 years old, and your dad's like, hey, look, we need to get you a passport to the United States. That's where your future is. Yep. Um, school isn't it. You know, your grades are okay, but not okay, good enough. Team sports, uh, not so much. Singing, you're tone deaf. <laughs> There's a tennis court. Yeah. Can you get good at it? So you got obviously good enough yep. to qualify you for a passport. Yep. What does that process look like? All I did was, I think academics was secondary after that. I woke up and played tennis. I went to school and I trained. Now again, I have to stop you. Mom and dad were not professional tennis players. Oh no, they, nothing, yeah. Up until that point where you're sitting on the bench looking at the tennis courts, you had never been on a tennis court. Yeah, just recreationally maybe, but yeah, I'd never taken a lesson or anything like that, yeah. Go on. Yeah, and then, so it was, but, but that also goes to show the, you know, looking back, kind of the singularity of focus, saying, I'm doing this for a very specific reason. This is a chance for me to show some skills, show some capabilities, so that somebody somewhere will recognize how decent I am at this, and I'll get a shot at something. Sure. And so I tried my hand playing at the professional tennis tour, just to get out of the country. That was the passport out. Right. And then that's when you get 
uh, colleges and universities started looking at you. They're like, okay, he's not just a, uh, you know, kind of a player, tennis player in some country. He actually has exposure and experience. Sure. And so that happened. But then I actually did decently well where I played on the pro tennis tour and I qualified and I got like what they call one ATP point. So I was a true professional. And so once you play pro tennis, you can't play college tennis. So that disqualified me from going to college Holy in the United God. States, which was now even worse. So our, pl our plan worked too well. Right. And so my so we found a loophole, which is uh, in the United States, Division three tennis, you, you don't get academic scholarships. So I applied to all these Division three tennis schools, sure. and I went to a Division three school, and that was my passport to come to the States. Gotcha. So this is a very interesting story. So what I, two big takeaways that I got for our audience that I want everyone to listen to, and, and since we're actually we're doing an Instagram Live, too, for all of you guys right now, is one, your reason why was big enough right. that you went all in, and hell or high water, I'm going to become a fucking amazing tennis player where I can get a passport and come to the United States. Right, and it wasn't so much that you were born with some organic, natural skill sets of tennis, <laughs> hand-eye coordination. Mom and dad certainly didn't have Correct. this genetic gift. Your reason why was big enough that you were able to invest the time and go singularly focused on that one thing. And so that's a really big lesson here for everyone because when you're coming up with a business idea, when you're coming up with a venture, starting a partnership, you really want to start thinking about what is my reason why? Because yeah. the going is going to get tough. Right. And when the going gets tough, if you don't have a compelling enough reason, it's easy enough to quit, which is why we see so many people give up on their dreams and aspirations. Yeah, and I think, and, I, and maybe you can talk to this, the, I think the why has to transcend you a little bit sometimes. So yeah. if a lot, of, a lot of people have a very strong why, they get it, they understand it, they know their impact of the world, but if my why was tied, like my, my, my dad, my why was socialized with my family. And I think that became a family why. Sure. And I think that got more compelling. So it was not a, so when I woke up in the morning, no one allowed me to sleep in, right? Like it was not a Sharon thing. It was a, the whole family thing. Yeah. And I think when, when we have the ability to socialize our why's, socialize our goals, and community drives achievement, right? Like when you can get a community to drive achievement, that's when all things kind of break loose. And just thinking about your why and writing it down is cool. I get it. You should at least do that. Sure. But if you need to start socializing, when you can be a part of a mastermind group, when you can have a coach, a mentor mm. it, it, to, to support you through that process, the, the why accountability, I think, really ups the ability, ups That's the ante. Huge. Well, the entire tribe gets behind you. Right. In this case, the tribe started with your family, and of course, the community got bigger, right? right. That's amazing. All right, so, so then you come to the United States. You, you find your way into a college because uh, you found the loophole. And let's fast forward a bit here. I remember when you told me the story, and I think it was over a steak dinner. Of, uh, this was so entertaining. You were learning to sell like stocks and bonds and all that stuff. And you guys had the thing stuck in your ear, even though, what was it, like the, the, the phone? Yeah, the headset, yeah, yeah. The headset, yeah. but it wasn't plugged into anything. Yeah. And now you weren't great at sales. Oh, I beginning, knew nothing. Right? I knew nothing Just about like it. tennis, you knew nothing about it. Yeah. So now here's something new. You're in New York at yeah. that point. Yeah. Tell us this, how this happens. So um, fast forward many years, I went to um, business school at Vanderbilt University down in Nashville, Tennessee. I uh, got recruited to go work at Goldman Sachs. I had 39 one-on-one -on -one interviews to get a job at Goldman. Sure. So this is not... Well, hold on, let me just share that with everyone. Yeah. 39 one-on-one -on -one interviews yeah. just to get the job at Goldman Sachs. Yep. This right. is not including coffees, dinners, phone conferences, nothing. This was 39 individual one-on-one -on -one interviews. Right. Now, how many things have our listeners and viewers tried a few times and then quit? Yeah. In your case, it was 39 people that you had to impress. Right. Go and on. you had to almost get you know, consensus. Sure. And so we were, so I walk into training and the entire job was calling on 
uh, presidents and CEOs of uh, fast-growing companies and introduce them to a Goldman Sachs relationship. So the interesting part here is that you have no idea what question you're going to get asked. If you're selling a stock or a bond, you know that you need domain expertise in that stock or a bond, and that's all you're going to get asked. Sure. But if I was calling you and I was introducing you to a worldwide firm that could do anything, you could ask me anything, right? And yeah. you could ask me anything. Yeah. And so, and I had to have really good you know, composure and exposure to what you're asking and deliver a good result. So the first day we walk into training, I thought training would be like three weeks. Training was six months every single day. And you're talking 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every single day. And so we walk in, they hand me a no uh, limit Amex card, corporate card. They hand me a Blackberry, it's the Blackberry days, sure. and a headset. And I said, well, why do I need this headset? I'm not making any calls. And the managing partner tells me, put it on and don't plug it into anything because you got to get used to having that as a part of your body. Mm. First, I thought he was crazy, but now, even today, I go, I walk into my office every day, I put my jacket up, I sit down in my chair, I open my laptop, I put my headset on. It doesn't matter what I am doing, it is, it, I'm conditioned. Yeah. And I think there is a symbolism of seriousness that comes with sure. what you have and how it's a part of your body. And I'm so, so much better with it. Uh, my, my, you'll really appreciate this, my wife, I was doing a client call like in my, in my, my home. I had my headset on, I'm doing my call in my home office, and it was like late Friday evening. I finished the call, and uh, you can kind of hear me. And so I come out. I'm like, hey, honey, how's it going? The kids, how's it going? She says, oh, Sharon, like, what do you want to do for dinner? Where do you want to go? And then I say, well, you know, how about um, maybe, um, maybe Thai, maybe? She's like, you are terrible. For an hour, there was no, not one, uh, not one um. You were extremely articulate. You were extremely decisive. You were so focused. You were so influential. And you can't, once you take your headset off, right? you, can't, you can't choose dinner. And that's you? when it started to actually make sense where, Small triggers, small yeah. rituals is when yeah. we can condition ourselves to really up our game. You know, it's funny that you say that in my book that's coming out September, uh, whenever, 18th, I talk about your starting ritual. Like, what is your morning starting ritual? If I don't go through my morning starting ritual of water, protein shake, coffee, play with my dog, cookie, and then get on my couch with my laptop, with my phone turned upside down and pushed away from me, things don't work yeah. out well. Yeah. But when I go through those five or six steps, Every single time, it's a predictable outcome in my favor, yeah. right? It's that starting ritual. And when the headset goes on you, boom, you are clear, you are concise, you're deliberate in the way you communicate. Well, you, you taught me this, the difference between a crop duster and a fighter jet, right? And yes, you, sir. The fighter jets, which fighter jet pilot walks in and just says, sure, we're ready to go. Like, there is a checklist. Right. And, and I, always, I always look to you. I always think about, hey, am I being a crop duster right now? <laughs> right. <laughs> or am I living my life as a fighter jet? I love that. I love that. It's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. Good. All right, so tennis, you come to the United States, and I know you were at Goldman Sachs, and you ultimately become a great salesperson, but somewhere between there and there, there was this time where you are the immigrant in a new country, and I'm guessing your family wasn't wealthy. You guys didn't come here with a lot of money, right? No, I didn't. So my, my parents were, um, so when I came to college, I came a couple of weeks earlier for orientation and things like that, and so my, my, my parents were great. They sold almost everything that they had, and they wrote me this check this international cashier's check to go pay for the first year of school. And uh, everyone says, well, you got this gift. Yes, my parents did that for me. Sure. So I go to financial services, I deposit this check, and they're like, hey, this is an international check and whatever, it's gonna take two weeks to clear. And I was like, okay, no problem. But I had no money for two weeks. I had room, but I had no money for anything else. Sure. And so what I did was I, I was walking around, I, I would go to every pizza party there was, I would steal every jar of peanut butter there was, yeah. and finally I found this guy who gave me kind of this side job 
loading and unloading from a dock. So he would just pay me, pay me cash. But he would pay me at the end of the week. So I kept working and I was hungry. And I saw this dumpster. And I saw these people putting just packages of food inside this dumpster. Yeah. And I said, well, maybe there's something in there just because I was hungry, I'd been hungry for days. Maybe there's something in there. Maybe there's something sanitary in there. So when it got dark, I waited. I didn't want, I was really conscious. I didn't want my friends to right. see anything. So I waited. I Is got, that Sharon in the dumpster? <laughs> I yeah. and, and looking back, I was so embarrassed then, right? Uh -huh. and, and, but looking back, it, it, it warms my heart that I did whatever I needed to do to survive. It's called resourcefulness. So I jumped in the dumpster and man, I found, I found gold, gold in that dumpster. I mean, I used to find full sandwiches. I used to find burgers. I used to find burritos. And so for like a good four days, I found like packed meals. I mean, not even just trash, half eaten. I found packed meals yeah. in there. And, and I would grab it. I would jump out. I would make sure no one was looking. I would run to my dorm room. I would heat it up in the free microwave and I would eat it and I would be so grateful and I'd wake up and I'd do it all over again. And one night, I kid you not, I saw this group of kids like throw a bunch of Subway bags, Subway sandwiches in there yeah. from a party. Yeah. And I was like, this, this is amazing. I have food for four days in here. So I wait, it gets dark. I jump in the dumpster and I reach and I see a, I see a, I see a box of Pop-Tarts on this big Subway bag. So I grab the Subway bag and I grab this Pop-Tart. And as I grab this Pop-Tart, something whacks me in the face. What was and I look and I see two like glowing eyes. There was a raccoon in the dumpster, whacks me in the face and is fighting over this Pop-Tart. And, and I, at that point, I was not giving up. So I whacked the raccoon back. I, I don't, you know, I, had, I, my, I was bleeding. I grabbed the Pop-Tarts. I grabbed the subway. I jump out and I run to health services, get a tetanus shot. I love that. But, but I, it was the scariest thing because I had no idea what that, what that was. Sure. But, um, I mean, you instinctively just had, like figured it out and then went into fight or flight. Exactly, and 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 the, the confines of a trash of a dumpster are not big enough for right. flight. Like I was there for food, and there was someone in my something in my way, right. and I was fighting that something. Ironically, so. the raccoon felt the same way. <laughs> yeah, the raccoon. I was in here first, and then this human gets in. The here. raccoon got some blood too. Yeah, right? yeah, I did. It, it's yeah, that's uh, definitely a defining moment. You know, uh, I feel like we're kindred spirits uh, often, uh, you know. As we went upstairs, Di said how much I talk talk about you. She's, she's heard everything about you. And it's because of stories like this. Like, this is truly the immigrant edge. Like, I came to this country as well. And my dad, I was six, seven years old, when my dad would put me into the, into the dumpsters and we'd have to fish out food <laughs> that was expired but hadn't necessarily gone bad. Right. But you're dumpster diving for food. And it does help you understand gratitude in a way that, unless you've starved, for days at a time, yeah. it's hard to understand that level of gratitude. I'm not suggesting people go out there and starve yourself, but maybe you ought to consider that. <laughs> just something to consider. You're not going to die. You're going to learn so much about yourself. So, Sharon, great. You, 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 you go to Vanderbilt and, of course, you Goldman Sachs, and then all of a sudden you are now the president of Telus Properties. What gives you the balls to go, we're going to 10x this in five years? Like, who said you can do that? Um, nobody. Okay. Nobody said I could do that, but... There was a time when I walk in and I look at the opportunity and you're faced with a decision. You're faced with a decision where you say, hey, at this point, we're going to wrap this up and sell this business because we need to move on to something else or we need to 
pour our heart and soul into this because there is an opportunity here to grow it, to make it something meaningful, to impact a bunch of lives, but that's gonna take a lot of hard work, it's gonna take a lot of growth, and I just think it's gonna take a lot of belief. And the, 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 the math was really easy. The math was, where we are now is not gonna work, where we need to be is this number, that is 10x from now for us to have options. Generally, the market goes in seven-year cycles. We need to do it in five so that we have two-year grace period so we can do something else with it if something goes wrong. So we have to 10x in five years. This was not like anything brilliant. This was a very simple, I need to get to that number. Sure. It was almost like math. Like, the, yeah, <laughs> here's how the economy works. Right. Here's where we need to be to have options. Right. And here's how much time we have to do it in. Correct. And and. Everything we did organized around that 10x. At any given time, do you and your two, you had two partners at the time? Right. At any given time, do you and your two partners go, well, that's impossible? Often, often, that, it, that happened often because um, there were, I mean, every business has setbacks, right? We had setbacks all the time. We had partnership issues, we had cash flow issues, I was lending the company money, so were the other partners, we lost market share. I mean, things like that happen. Sure. And, but we were like, hey, there is, we called it the singularity of focus. The singularity of focus is this. Every year we have to do this to get to our 10x, yeah. and there is no other way. So as long as we keep plowing through our singularity of focus. So we called it the, the big three. We said there's, the, how we run our company is governed by three things. Singularity of focus. The 10x needs to happen. That means we need to do this much every year. Yeah. Number two, we call it the cadence of accountability. And that's where coaches and mentors come in. But the cadence of accountability is super important, right? Unless you say you're going to do these six things every day, like, for example, if we didn't do $5 million a day, like, we would never hit the billion dollar, like, $3 billion number. Sure. So for us, it was just, I need to do $5 million every single day. And one, and I'd see the charts every day, and I were like, 3.5, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I need to do seven and a half tomorrow, next, next, next day. Yeah. And the cadence of accountability actually gave us purpose on everything that we did. And the last thing is good process drives good results. And so anytime someone would try to hack it at our, at our business, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's all agree and declare that we're hacking this right now. But when we get to thousands of transactions and billions of dollars in sales, all this stuff is going to fall apart. And then we're going to have to rebuild all over again. So can we commit that we're hacking it for 30 days, but we need to build the infrastructure because good process and good process alone drives good results. Oh, three very important yeah. lessons. Three very important lessons there. And so the thing I want to share with our audience here real quick before we move on to the next phase here is... Yeah, you created options for yourself. And yeah, you and your partners came in and said, you know what? We're going to 10x this and we only have five years to do it in. So we're going to take a $300 million company that's not doing so good and 10x it to a $3 billion company to have the options. And you're right. You do have partnership problems. You do have cash flow problems. You do have market share problems. And even with all that, you knew that your big goal of $3 billion was going to happen only if you break it down to the most achievable numbers, which is $5 million a day, right? Right. And so whatever your big goal is, guys and gals listening and watching the show right now, if you like, for example, we want 2,500 Fit Body Bootcamp locations by the year 2023. Yeah. I can't just sit there and focus on that number and manifest it. I have to close 48 locations a month yeah. in order to get there. And I know then what my daily number is for us to get there, right? And when you reduce something down to the ridiculous, and that's what's really that's called. Because $3 billion, that's a scary number. right? But if you reduce it down to a more palatable number, like just $5 million a day in sales, and I say just because <laughs> it's properties, right? It's, right. it's high-end sure. you know, yeah. luxury properties. So that could just mean $5 a day 
depending on right. what someone's business model is. It's a lot more achievable. And you held yourself accountable on a daily basis instead of a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Because right. imagine this, today you said you do three million. Oh my gosh, tomorrow I gotta do seven and a half. Right. Like you see a difference day to day. Whereas if every quarter we go and see how well we did, I might have been off track a month into the quarter, didn't even know it, right? Right. So that's a great lesson there to share with us. So now that you were presented the option, so let's say you know our, our viewers and audience go, all right, I want to get to a point where I could liquidate. I can have a liquidation event and sell my mm -hmm. company. What two or three things have, have to happen or does the CEO president have to do to position their company to sell? There's, there's two components. Component number one is to get the highest possible offer, sure. you have to signal to the potential acquirer that you don't need to sell. Because otherwise, because otherwise you're like, I, I can walk away from this deal at any point. Sure. And the second is deals that way they're structured today are, um, are very formulaic. You get some upfront, you get some stock, you get some equity, you get cash, you get, there's a lot of components of the puzzle. So there is the signaling component and there's the terms component. And the signaling component is, is romance is a dance, it's positioning, it's like a year of stuff. And that's not just, I think a lot of people will say, you know, kind of bragging is not branding, right? It's if I can say, you're gonna buy my company, I gotta not tell you about how great I am, I gotta tell you, what do I have that can make you great? Mm. I had to step away from being the principal of my company and to almost being like servant leadership for the acquirer. Sure. I had to stop and say, who are they? What do they stand for? And why does it benefit them, come hell or high water, to, to buy us? What is their advantage? It's getting in the head of the buyer to say, even if I tighten the deal terms, even if I say I'm gonna walk away, even if I you know, play hard to get, yeah. they still want me, why? And, and you do it with integrity, but I, the interesting part is after the deal was done, and this is when you know you did it well, after the deal was done, I knew our buyer's value proposition almost better than they did, mm. right? So I could walk in and pitch. I had to pitch to my 700 agents why they had to do this deal, why it was good for them. And I could pitch it better than the buyers. And I think that took a while and getting in that mindset. So I would, I would just sit there and draw on the whiteboard, like why, why? Why is this better? Why is this better? So the number one is the signaling and the romance. Yeah. The terms get very interesting, and there's a really cool concept called look forward, reason back. So we always say, okay, great, I'm gonna take these set of terms. This set of cash, this set of options, this set of earnout, this set of, this is my title, this is what my team's gonna get to do. Now let's take that, freeze it, and blow it out a year. Does it still work? Does gotcha. it still work? Because a lot of times we make decisions in the moment, a snapshot, but when you can stop and remove time, then you can see, oh, Beatrice wouldn't be happy, Sharon wouldn't be happy. Does that actually fund my lifestyle? What if I had to walk? And you can actually do that. But blowing out time with terms is when, is when that got really exciting. So we, all, we did a lot of time term study. Yeah. And we said, oh, if we had to walk away on day one, would that be good? Did we do right by our people? Are our people in the right place? Talk about in a year, are they in a better place? Okay, right. good. So that, that, the managing terms, the deal is a deal. The terms and the covenants the are, are, are very, very important. You know, I, I learned so much just, just right there in that moment because I never even realized about that other piece, the romance piece. You know, I just always figured in my head, you're going to sell the steak. Yeah. You're going to sell the steak. But there's so much to selling the sizzle. 
And as you were telling me this, I was like, okay, there's a sizzle. How's it prepared? What's the ambiance? We can have a good steak in a shitty restaurant and we wouldn't be able to appreciate it. Right. We can have a good steak in an ambiance that's just immaculate, amazing, well-lit, you know, piano music going and just beautiful people at the bar. And all of a sudden that steak tastes better. And there's studies that prove of that, course. right? And uh, which also leads us to our Instagram friend, Salt Bay. You know, I'm sure you know who Salt Bay is, right? How the guy puts on a show at his <laughs> restaurants, at his steakhouses, when he's salting his steaks. It's for that reason that, you know, he's growing his restaurants faster than any other, you know, high-end restaurant out there. It's selling the sizzle and the steak and not just so much the steak. So that's a great lesson there. If you were sitting across from a an entrepreneur who's maybe doing a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year, and they go, you know what? After hearing you, I want a ten x. I want a ten x. What would they have to change mentally? Not what do they have to do in their business because sure. you don't know their business. What do they have to change up here yeah. to be able to ten x from where they are to where they want to be? Yeah, the first thing is um, transformation doesn't happen in isolation. Right. That is the, the, that was the number one lesson. If I moved back seven years, I thought I could do it all myself. Sure. And man, do you hit all kinds of all kinds of blocks for, for whatever reason, maybe capabilities, maybe mindset, whatever it may be. Having a coach, mentor, guide, operating board of advisors cannot be more important when you're starting to burst through like that much growth. So I would say, number one, transformation doesn't happen in isolation. So if if you're extremely serious about a 10x growth, if you're extremely serious about kind of having that much transformation in your business, you've got to have an insane support system to help you get there. Someone that's been there before, someone that can be with you along the ride, and people that you start with may not be people that you end with, and that's okay. Sure. But you cannot, you cannot do that much on your own. So that's number one. Number two, I learned this the hard way, and you and I have talked a lot about this, which is you can't just 10x one part of your life. I honestly thought, hey, I'm good. I'm just gonna go 10x my business. Right. It is insane, you need, your family needs to 10x with you, your relationships need to 10x with you, your health. Your health. Your health needs to 10x with you. One thing that broke down was, was my health, yeah. because I would just, I would sacrifice everything else for work. And I appreciate you being this yeah. transparent about it. Yeah, I mean, your health did break down, was, and when you and I first met, yeah. you were just on the cusp of recovering. Recovering, yeah. yeah. And my, when my health broke down, I realized I couldn't do everything. I was not Superman. And we, that's when we went and we did a search for a true COO because I was doing everything in the business. And I believe, I was like, how am I ever going to hand over operations of our business to someone else? How am I ever going to do that? And then I found a COO and he is amazing, amazing. I'll tell you this, this the dream COO, right? Yeah. Calls me and he's like, hey, Sharon, how many emails do you have in your inbox? I say, seven. He goes, I'm failing my job on seven counts. Hit forward. Wow. That's when you know you have a partner. That's when you know that there's true like distinction in roles. And I was like, this is amazing. I told him, I was like, you and I are going to business forever because he's kind of the, the other side of the coin. Yeah. Um, so the second thing, you cannot just, there's no, there's no 10xing just one part of your business, which is interesting as well. If you can 10x your business, 10x something else and everything else will level up. Right. Everything will up. Right. You, can, you can hack your way to 10. 10x the lowest hanging fruit, right? Yep. And I always tell, it's just funny, a, a client texted me today and she said, I'm in a really bad place. I'm thinking of pulling the plug on this new business that I started. Yeah. I should just stick with the other two businesses that are generating multi-millions. I said, it's okay to feel like pulling the plug. It is not okay to actually pull the plug. Today is one day of many. What I want you to do is go get some more wins under your belt. Right. She wasn't about to get any wins in this new industry today. She's just not in that right headspace. Yeah. 
And so she's in the fitness space. So I said, go to the gym and get your, just crush a workout. Yeah. She texted me an hour and a half later. She goes, I feel so great. Yeah. I'm back at the grind. Just 10x one area that you're good at. Right. And it bleeds into everything else. 100%. That's such a great message you're sending. I got two more. Yes, sir. Um, routines drive results. Right? And I think if we can become a slave to great routines, they just will drive great results. Yeah. And so they, when I talk to you know, clients that I work with, coaching clients, mentoring clients, it's always just figuring out, can I tweak one thing? Can I tweak two things that they can do over and over that they'll just start to see the compound effect of those results? To them, it was something small. To them, it was just flossing at night, but they don't realize that now their psyche believes that they can do anything every single day. Yeah. So I, and, and when I start saying, hey, routines drive results, they're like, well, I'm not getting results. Well, let's fix your routines. So now it's, there's no depression around the results. Right. There's only action around the routines. Focus on the routines. And my favorite one is my last one. And I think you and I connect a lot on this is greatness is in the granularity. Everybody believes that they can be the CEO, the president. They can just say, go out and have, and have the 50,000 Instagram following, can do the speeches, can, you know, can talk about, can write a book to do whatever, but you don't know what's going on in your business. I knew every single thing that happened in every single office. I knew every single process. I didn't do it, but I knew it. You can't BS me, but the greatness isn't that granularity. Right? And when they can, when they can find, it, you cannot, you cannot just be up here. Jeff Bezos knows exactly what happens on his website. Right? I, he doesn't have to do it, but he understands the consumer yeah. experience. He understands what happens. He understands the outcome. And a lot of times I'll ask kind of folks that get disconnected, the CEOs that get disconnected. I said, so um, what metrics are you tracking? He's like, oh, I'm tracking these two things. I'm like, great. Well, what are your, what are the folks in the field selling? Are you tracking those? You're disconnected. You're disconnected from the granularity of your business. You're disconnected from the value chain. Nothing happens until a sale is made, sure. and you're disconnected from the value chain. So if we can stay connected to the value chain, we can do so much more. So when you see an idea, like when I come and I walk into your beautiful offices, your headquarters, and I see an idea, I'm like, wow, I know where this can fit in my value chain because I know my value chain so you well. You know it so well. Yeah. yeah, and most people don't know that. Yeah. And so when you pick up an idea, go to a conference, and you, you don't know where to put it. And I think that's where knowing the granularity gets really important. Yeah. And you can't, you can't implement fast enough if you, if you don't have the knowledge of the granularity. So those four things kind of really come together. That's huge. You know, and, and it's, it's really knowing your business better than anybody else. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, even if you get the dream CEO, the, the unicorn or COO, CEO, yeah. you still have to have your finger on the pulse and know your value chain. Because when you walk into somewhere, you go to a conference, you meet someone and you see value, where does it go into my business, Correct. right? You can't just say, hey, see where you can plug this in. They may not plug it in <laughs> in the right place. That's right. Right? And another big thing that um, was a big takeaway from me here is that you, you come from this place of optimism, appreciation, and gratitude. And I want to end this episode on that. We've broken bread many a times. We've traveled together. And I constantly see this happy, optimistic, appreciative, grateful man. How does one stay this way? Do, do you have a process, a routine? Do, do, how yeah. do you stay this it, happy? Uh, it, it, I, I think it comes down to two things. Um, one is investing a lot in your, your, per, your, your personal infrastructure. And I, I call my family is very important to me. And people always talk about the family being important to them. But I'm very vulnerable with my family, and that's my core. And I feel secure in that. I work really hard to manage that, and that's really important. But to maintain that, um, I put all my fears down on paper. Mm. 
Uh, I do this practice called the morning pages. And so I, I wake up in the morning and I dump out everything that's in my head, everything. And I, I might write something, I'm excited to be with Baders today, but my elbow hurts, whatever. I get everything out sure. to the point where there's nothing in my head anymore. And once you're an empty vessel, you can, you can, you can start to reprogram yourself. You can start to put good stuff. And I think a lot of times we're already stuck with uh, the, I didn't sleep very well, or my neck hurts or whatever. And then now you look at email and then you've got more bullets coming at you. But if you can, if you have a good base with a family, a friend, whoever, the personal infrastructure. Yeah. And some people like their meditation, some people like to work out, whatever it may be, you need some, you need some kind of personal core strength. Grounding. But you also, uh, I heard this amazing quote, fear has no place on paper. And I really like that, fear has no place on paper. So when I get, when I'm, when I'm in my head, when I get stuck, when I get unhappy, when I get depressed, and we, let's, let's all agree, we all, we all sure. have these series of emotions, right? I think it's important to have a tactic, a tool, a vehicle to, to work through it. And my working through it is like, you, you, may, you, may wanna, you may read my journal, it would make no sense, but I just pour everything out. And man, I feel so much better after. So uh, it, I learned that a little later in life, but it's, a, it's one of my favorite, favorite things. And sometimes when I'm stuck, I'll actually pull over to Starbucks and just write and get it all out. And then I feel a lot Brilliant. better. So much value to journaling, whether it's first thing in the morning or at the end of the day, doing the brain dump. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan as well. So, Sharon, how can our audience find you, connect with you, and learn from your wisdom? Oh, thank you. Uh, it, the easiest way to reach me is on my website, Sharon.com. It's S-H-A-R-R-A-N.com. But I'm on all the social media uh, channels, and the goal is to, a lot of people like you have been so great to me, mentors and coaches to me, and the goal for me, how much ever I try, I will forever be in people's debt who have gotten me here. So paying it forward is the only thing I care about right now. You are amazing at paying it forward. Sean, I thank you so much for being on our show. And folks, if you like this episode, if you got great value from this episode, please do me a favor and like it, share it, leave a comment. And of course, give us your highest review. We are here to serve you. We're here to help you build your biggest, most profitable, and of course, meaningful empire that we can. Thank you so much for watching and listening to the show. Take care.